Well, hello, Encounter friends. Before I read the Bible passages and speak, let's pray. Our Father, thank you for promising to bless your children with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This morning, we ask for the Holy Spirit to speak to us through the Bible so that we both understand its truths and apply them to our lives. And we make this request to you in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin and will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Zechariah chapter 4 verses 1 to 10. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. The title of this talk is The Cleansing and Empowering of the Lord. The year was 1519 or 1519 BC and some of the Jewish exiles had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. The reading we've just heard describes how the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophet Zechariah to re-establish God's ways of running the country. 
It was still to be a theocracy, which means that the Lord God is their direct ruler, and they are to continue to have three human leaders who will need to work together, the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet at this time was Zechariah. His role was to listen to the Lord and faithfully pass on to the other leaders what he received. It would be either foretelling, that is revealing something about the future, or forthtelling, that is discernment about current events. The high priest at this time was Joshua. He had the concern for the spiritual life of the nation. His role was to intercede on behalf of the people before God, the Lord, and on behalf of the Lord God to the people, as well as to oversee the temple praise, worship, and sacrifices. And the king, or the governor at this time, was Zerubbabel, who, as a descendant of David, King David, was a confirmation of the Lord's covenant which he made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when the Lord promised that David would always have a descendant on Israel's throne. Zerubbabel had the responsibility of managing the civil affairs of the nation. He was to lead the people by example, always trusting in the Lord to protect and to provide for them, and to do so by listening carefully to the words of the prophet and the priest. Ultimately, Jesus fulfilled all three of these roles, as the prophet who was infinitely greater than Moses, Israel's greatest, as the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and as the son of David, the king of kings, which is why we look to Jesus as the head of every aspect of his church, that's us, the new community of God's people, and we submit all our giftings and our positions to him. From first-hand experience, Joshua and Zerubbabel knew how tough it was to lead. Their work wasn't easy. Zerubbabel was trying to motivate the people who were discouraged and selfish, and Joshua was trying to educate people who were disobedient and sinful. It's clear and completely understandable that both Joshua and Zerubbabel felt unworthy. They looked around themselves and they wondered, why me? I don't think I'm very good at this. I'm no better than the other folk. I don't see much change happening. I'm not at all sure whether I am the man for this job. This is humble and honest, but also paralysing. And it leaves such a person very open to Satan's undermining plans. Is there any hope for a defiled, defiled and discouraged nation or church or individual? Well, thankfully, there is. The Lord God gave the prophet Zechariah two visions that speak to us today and encourage us to keep serving no matter how difficult the people or the circumstances may be. Which brings us to the beginning of chapter 3, where the focus is on Joshua, the high priest. Now, the one thing everyone knew that was the highest priority for the high priest is that in order to enter the temple, to be before the Lord in the holy place, and particularly to enter the most holy place, 
the high priest had to be ceremonially and physically clean. I mean, pristine, uber clean, ultra immaculate, spotless, unsoiled and unsullied. The cleanest of the clean. And he had to be fastidious about it. He had to bathe and put on the cleanest clothes possible. It was utterly unthinkable that the high priest would even be allowed to enter the temple in dirty clothes. But verse 3, there he is, dressed in filthy clothes. Anyone hearing this prophecy from Zechariah would be, would be stunned. They, they'd do a double take. They wouldn't believe you. They would be utterly dumbfounded and they would be very embarrassed. So what's with these filthy clothes? They represent the futility of any person who attempts to present themselves before the Holy Lord God in their own righteousness and purity. They represent the very best that a human being can be. The high priest was the spiritual head of the nation. He was the representative of all the people of Israel. Had he done everything he could to outwardly be as clean as possible? But when he was in the very presence of the utter holiness and perfection of the Lord, well then by comparison his very best was total depravity and complete filthiness. That is the stark reality for every human being. As Isaiah said in chapter 64, verse 6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the purity of the Lord. And the word used for filthy is closely related in Hebrew to words that mean either human excrement or vomit. How delightful! Such uncleanliness is obviously inappropriate for a high priest in the presence of the Lord God. So back to our passage and bum, 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 enter Satan, verses 1 and 2, whose name means accuser and who was busy living up to his reputation. Remember, when Satan talks to us about God, he lies. But when he talks to God about us, he tells the truth. Satan insisted that a holy God should punish his sinful people, starting with his sinful leader. But the angel of the Lord, which in the Old Testament is synonymous with the Lord himself, doesn't stand idly by. And Satan thought that he had an airtight case, except for one key momentous factor, the outrageous grace of God. I mean, undeniably, Joshua was filthy, both inside and out. But God proclaimed his amazing grace for the high priest. Rather than deny the accusations, the Lord firmly rebuked the accuser and he stood up for Joshua. He declared his intention to change the deplorable condition of the high priest and all because of his magnificent and undeserved grace. The stain will be removed and new clothing provided to signal a new start for the priesthood and the people and it opened the way for the return of the Lord to the temple. 
How encouraging it must have been for Joshua to hear the Lord God say to the angels, verse 4, take off his filthy clothes. And then, in another marvellous act of grace, pointing forward to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, to hear him declare, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. God, in his grace, goes beyond forgiveness and clothes us in his own righteousness. This is how we are victorious over the inner guilt, shame and unworthiness that assail us. We can't change ourselves. And if we try and live without receiving forgiveness, cleansing and inner transformation from the Lord, we, we will not, we cannot positively inf influence others. The key point of this chapter, therefore, is that God applies his sovereign grace to Joshua and that this alone dismisses the indictment of Satan against him. Christians always face the great danger of losing sight of the fundamental doctrine of grace in our walk with God. I've, I've celebrated with new Christians as they have reveled in the joy and true freedom of grace and I've puzzled over so-called mature Christians who have lost the wonder. The grace of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith from first to last. And we must never leave it behind as we mature in the faith. For if we do, our gospel will no longer bring life it will only reflect our own joyless striving and guilt-inducing legalism. It's Zechariah himself in verse 6 who commands the attendants to set a clean turban on Joshua's head. In Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 4, a turban is specifically mentioned as a part of the high priest's attire on the Day of Atonement. You might remember that the Day of Atonement was the only day of the year when the high priest was allowed to enter into the most holy place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And on that day, he made atonement for both the sins of the Israelite community through the scapegoat and he sacrificed a sin offering as a substitute for the sin of the nation, their position of wrong relationship with the Lord. With his inner cleansing and outer clean attire, Joshua was now equipped to fulfil his divine calling as the high priest for the nation. But verse 7 is a reminder that God's grace can never be taken for granted. There followed conditional clauses outlining the expectations for the high priest. In this verse, the Lord God commissioned Joshua and gave him the promises, the commands, the comfort and the affirmation he needed so desperately. If you walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you a place among these standing here. If you walk in my ways implies utter commitment to God's revealed character and intentions and the rejection of anything that will compromise that commitment. And keep my charge involves the faithful performance of the priestly role. In short, 
Joshua was to fulfill both the moral and the priestly requirements. Joshua, you are the man that I have chosen for this position. And if you keep your thoughts and your eyes on me and seek to live a life of humble, holy, godly obedience, then you will be fruitful and fulfilled. In all this, the person and work of Joshua's greater namesake, Jesus, was being anticipated. What God did for Joshua symbolically and individually, he would do for Israel personally. Verse 9, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. This was something that Jesus achieved on the cross for all people when he willingly became sin and freely gave all who believe in him his gift of righteousness. With the high priest now in the right position before the Lord, Zechariah is given another vision in, the, in chapter 4, the purpose of which was to encourage and equip Zerubbabel, the national leader, the governor, the king. When Solomon built the first temple, which the Babylonians later destroyed in 586 BC, Solomon had absolute authority and almost unlimited resources at his disposal. By contrast, the Jews in Zerubbabel's day had no such authority or resources. The Lord God reminded his leader, through his prophet Zechariah, that his kingdom will always come and his will will always be done, but not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Verse 6. The word might here refers to military might, what people can do together. Might focuses on collective strength. The problem was the remnant had no army. The word power focuses on individual strength. But the problem was Zerubbabel's strength was insufficient. God was saying that his kingdom work will be completed and victorious but it will not come about by the forces of the many or of the power of one person. There are three ways that we can attempt to do the work of God. First, we can trust in our own strength and wisdom. Second, we can borrow the resources of the world. Or third, we can depend on the power of God. The first two approaches may sometimes appear to succeed, but in the end they always fail. If we choose to trust in our own resources, we will never know or enjoy the full supply of the Holy Spirit. Only service carried out in, the, in and through the power of the Spirit can bring glory to God, will endure the fires of his judgment and is guaranteed to have eternal value. The clear message to Zerubbabel was, don't be discouraged. The stated fact from God was that the temple rebuilding, which was already in progress, would be completed. No argument, no ifs, no buts, no maybes, no doubts. It will happen, period. How could Zechariah and Zerubbabel be sure? Because the Lord God, in verse 8, stated that it would. How will this seemingly impossible enterprise occur? Well, it will not be by might, nor will it be by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. 
the same life-giving Spirit of the Lord that brought about creation. Was such a miraculous supernatural intervention necessary in order to complete the building? Admittedly of the temple, but nonetheless it's just a building. Absolutely. Because the work and the way it is done and the provision of the material resources as well as the finished building, all of that were going to witness to God, the Lord Almighty. Only if his spirit governs every detail can our service be glorifying to him. Verse 7 described the problems facing Zerubbabel. What are you, mighty mountain? With their limited resources, completing the temple must have looked to these Jews as impossible as moving a mountain. But the Lord God told Zerubbabel that he would, in the power of God's spirit, level the mountain and make it a plain. It's Zerubbabel's royal connection that explains his role in the restoration of the temple foundation. One ritual in the rebuilding of a temple occurred at the outset of the work, in which a stone was, was chosen from the rubble of the former temple. Then once the rubble was cleared, the foundation laying began with a royal figure laying this first stone of the new foundation. Verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation stone. That's the beginning of the project. It's happened. But then verse 7 brings a wonderful affirmation. He, that's Zerubbabel, will bring out the capstone. The capstone was the last stone to be placed in the building. It was the completion stone. God assured Zerubbabel that he would complete the rebuilding of the temple and the people would rejoice at what God had done through them with shouts of God bless it, God bless it, literally grace, grace. So Zerubbabel faced two severe challenges, a physical one, a great mountain of rubble that needed to be removed and a temple that needed to be built and a spiritual challenge emanating from the derision of those less than enthusiastic about the project. To some of the Jews, in comparison to Solomon's great temple, this project was, verse 10, a small thing. For both challenges, Zechariah promised and prophesied a reversal. Whatever the opposition... And regardless of its size or power, the Lord God assured Zerubbabel that he would finish the temple. The great mountain will become level ground and despising will become rejoicing. I, I'm certain that most of the people wanted the rebuilding to succeed and that they were very glad when it did, but their faith was too small. So they were surprised into rejoicing. Have you ever wondered what the keys on a typewriter might say if they could speak? I mean, can you picture one of those old typewriters with the keys you, you had to thump down? There was one key that was hardly ever used. It seemed to have no purpose at all. It might have felt totally useless. It was the key with a symbol that which looked like an A with a, with a circle round it. Little did that key know that soon its day would come. 
Soon it would be vital for everyone to know where it was on the keyboard. Never again will the at symbol be despised. And never despise the day of small things. For God is glorified in small things and uses them to accomplish great things. The Bible is a record of God using small things. When God wanted to set the plan of salvation in motion, he started with a little baby named Isaac. When he wanted to overthrow Egypt and set his people free, he used baby Moses' tears. He used a shepherd boy and a sling to defeat a giant and a boy's lunch to feed a multitude. And as for the church, when it began with 120 people and today it ministers all over the world. So let's remember Joshua and Zerubbabel. They are an encouragement to all who seek to serve the Lord in any way. Like Joshua, we will need to receive the Lord's grace and forgiveness and be clothed in his robes of righteousness. And like Zerubbabel, we will need to seek the Spirit's help to remove the huge piles of rubble in our lives so that we can begin the work of seeing the kingdom of God come in our midst. Our heartfelt cry must be, Lord, send revival, start with me. Today, the completion of God's kingdom is as certain as the completion of the temple. And verse 6 is still the key verse. In it, we have the guaranteed promise of the Holy Spirit. In the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit is freely available for all Christians. No longer are we reliant upon or restricted to only our leaders being filled and empowered, although it helps if they are. Indeed, it's imperative that they are. Our wonderful Heavenly Father has promised to empower, cleanse and bless all his children. And this will happen as we learn to live, not by might, nor by power, but by his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for always standing up for us whenever Satan the accuser attacks us. We are so grateful for your amazing grace and undeserved forgiveness. Please help us never to take either of them for granted. Lord Jesus, thank you for demonstrating your love for us on the cross when you became sin and paid in full for all of our sins. Please help us to live and speak in such a way that others might receive you as their Lord and enjoy eternal life. Holy Spirit, please fill us afresh today. We do not want to live another day in our own might and power. From now on, our desire is to welcome you into our lives, to bring glory to Jesus and to see the church victorious in our land. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.